Section thirty seven of Montcalm and Wolfe by Francis Parkman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter fourteen, part two. The pronouns I and my recur with monotonous frequency in his correspondence. I have laid waste all the British provinces. By promptly uniting my forces at Carillon, I have kept General Loudon in check, though he had at his disposal an army of about twenty thousand men. And so, without end in all varieties of repetition, it is no less characteristic that he here assigns to his enemies double their actual force. He has the faintest of praise for the troops from France. They are generally good, but thus far they have not absolutely distinguished themselves. I do justice to the firmness they showed at Oswego, but it was only the colony troops, Canadians and Indians, who attacked the forts. Our artillery was directed by the Chevalier Le Mercier, and Monsieur Fremont, colony officers, and was served by our colony troops and our militia. The officers from France are more inclined to defence than attack. Far from spending the least thing here, they lay by their pay. They saved the money allowed them for refreshments, and had it in pocket at the end of the campaign. They get a profit, too, out of their provisions, by having certificates made under borrowed names, so that they can draw cash for them on their return. It is the same with the soldiers, who also sell their provisions to the king, and get paid for them. In conjunction with Monsieur Bigot, I labour to remedy all these abuses, and the rules we have established have saved the king a considerable expense. Monsieur de Montcalm has complained very much of these rules. The intendant Bigot, who here appears as a reformer, was the centre of a monstrous system of public fraud and robbery, while the charges against the French officers are unsupported. Vaudreuil, who never loses an opportunity of disparaging them, proceeds thus. The troops from France are not on very good terms with our Canadians. What can the soldiers think of them when they see their officers threaten them with sticks or swords? The Canadians are obliged to carry these gentry on their shoulders through the cold water over rocks that cut their feet, and if they make a false step, they are abused. Can anything be harder? Finally, Monsieur de Montcalm is so quick-tempered that he goes to the length of striking the Canadians. How can he restrain his officers when he cannot restrain himself? Could any example be more contagious? This is the way our Canadians are treated. They deserve something better. 
he then enlarges on their zeal hardihood and bravery and adds that nothing but their blind submission to his commands prevents many of them from showing resentment at the usage they had to endure the indians he goes on to say are not so gentle and yielding and but for his brother rigaud and himself might have gone off in a rage after the campaign of oswego they did not hesitate to tell me that they would go wherever i sent them provided i did not put them under the orders of monsieur de montcalm they told me positively that they could not bear his quick temper i shall always maintain the most perfect union and understanding with monsieur le marquis de montcalm but i shall be forced to take measures which will assure to our canadians and indians treatment such as their zeal and services merit to the subject of his complaints vaudreuil used a different language for montcalm says after mentioning that he had had occasion to punish some of the canadians at oswego i must do monsieur de vaudreuil the justice to say that he approved my proceedings he treated the general with the blandest politeness he is a good-natured man continued montcalm mild with no character of his own surrounded by people who try to destroy all his confidence in the general of the troops from france i am praised excessively in order to make him jealous excite his canadian prejudices and prevent him from dealing with me frankly or adopting my views when he can help it he elsewhere complains that vaudreuil gave to both him and levis orders couched in such equivocal terms that he could throw the blame on them in case of reverse montcalm liked the militia no better than the governor liked the regulars i have used them with good effect though not in places exposed to the enemy's fire they know neither discipline nor subordination and think themselves in all respects the first nation on earth he is sure however that they like him i have gained the utmost confidence of the canadians and indians and in the eyes of the former when i travel or visit their camps i have the air of a tribune of the people the affection of the canadians for me is so strong that there are moments when it astonishes the governor the indians are delighted with me he says in another letter the canadians are pleased with me their officers esteem and fear me and would be glad if the french troops and their general could be dispensed with and so should i and he writes to his mother the part i have to play is unique i am a general-in-chief subordinated sometimes with everything to do and sometimes nothing i am esteemed respected beloved envied hated i pass for proud supple stiff yielding polite devout gallant etc 
and I long for peace. The letters of the governor and those of the general, it will be seen, contradict each other flatly at several points. Montcalm is sustained by his friend Bougainville, who says that the Indians had a great liking for him, and that he knew how to manage them as well as if he had been born in their wigwams. And while Vaudreuil complains that the Canadians are ill-used by Montcalm, Bougainville declares that the regulars are ill-used by Vaudreuil. One must be blind not to see that we are treated as the Spartans treated the Hellos. He then comments on the jealous reticence of the governor. The Marquis de Montcalm has not the honor of being consulted, and it is generally through public rumor that he first hears of Monsieur de Vaudreuil's military plans. He calls the governor a timid man who can neither make a resolution nor keep one, and he gives another trait of him, illustrating it, after his usual way, by a parallel from the classics. When V produces an idea, he falls in love with it, as Pygmalion did with his statue. I can forgive Pygmalion, for what he produced was a masterpiece. The exceeding touchiness of the governor was sorely tried by certain indiscretions on the part of the general, who in his rapid and vehement utterance sometimes forgot the rules of prudence. His anger, though not deep, was extremely impetuous, and it is said that his irritation against Vaudreuil sometimes found escape in the presence of servants and soldiers. There was no lack of reporters, and the governor was told everything. The breach widened apace, and Canada divided itself into two camps, that of Vaudreuil with the colony officers, civil and military, and that of Montcalm with the officers from France. The principal exception was the Chevalier de Levis. This brave and able commander had an easy and adaptable nature, which made him a sort of connecting link between the two parties. One should be on good terms with everybody, was a maxim which he sometimes expressed, and on which he shaped his conduct with notable success. The intendant Bigot, also an adroit and accomplished person, had the skill to avoid breaking with either side. But now the season of action was near, and domestic strife must give place to efforts against the common foe. God or devil, Montcalm wrote to Bourlamaque, we must do something and risk a fight. If we succeed, we can, all three of us, you, Levis, and I ask for promotion. Burn this letter. The prospects on the whole were hopeful. The victor at Oswego had wrought marvels among the Indians, inspired the faithful, confirmed the wavering, and daunted the ill-disposed. The whole West was astir, ready to pour itself again in blood and fire against the English border, 
and even the Cherokees and the Choctaws, old friends of the British colonies, seemed on the point of turning against them. The Five Nations were hard won for France. In November, a large deputation of them came to renew the chain of friendship at Montreal. I have laid Oswego in ashes, said Vaudreuil. The English quail before me. Why do you nourish serpents in your bosom? They mean only to enslave you. The deputies trampled underfoot the medals the English had given them, and promised the devourer of villages, for so they styled the governor, that they would never more lift the hatchet against his children. The chief difficulty was to get rid of them, for being clothed and fed at the expense of the king, they were in no haste to take leave, and learning that New Year's Day was a time of visits, gifts, and health-drinking, they declared that they would stay to share its pleasures, which they did to their own satisfaction and the annoyance of those who were forced to entertain them and their squaws. An active siding with France was to be expected only from the western bands of the Confederacy. Neutrality alone could be hoped for from the others, who were too near the English safely to declare against them, while from one of the tribes, the Mohawks, even neutrality was doubtful. Vaudreuil, while disliking the French regulars, felt that he could not dispense with them, and had asked for a reinforcement. His request was granted, and the colonial minister informed him that twenty-four hundred men had been ordered to Canada to strengthen the colony regulars and the battalions of Montcalm. This, according to the estimate of the minister, would raise the regular force in Canada to sixty-six hundred rank and file. The announcement was followed by another, less agreeable. It was to the effect that a formidable squadron was fitting out in British ports. Was Quebec to be attacked, or Louisbourg? Louisbourg was beyond reach of succour from Canada. It must rely on its own strength and on help from France. But so long as Quebec was threatened, all the troops in the colony must be held ready to defend it and the hope of attacking England in her own domains must be abandoned. Till these doubts were solved, nothing could be done, and hence great activity in catching prisoners for the sake of news. A few were brought in, but they knew no more of the matter than the French themselves, and Vaudreuil and Montcalm rested for a while in suspense. The truth, had they known it, would have gladdened their hearts. The English preparations were aimed at Louisbourg. In the autumn before, Loudon, prejudiced against all plans of his predecessor Shirley, proposed to the ministry a scheme of his own, involving a possible attack on Quebec, but with the reduction of Louisbourg as its immediate object. An important object, no doubt, but one that had no direct bearing on the main question of controlling the interior of the continent. 
Pitt, then for a brief space at the head of the government, accepted the suggestion and set himself to executing it. But he was hampered by opposition, and early in April was forced to resign. Then followed a contest of rival claimants to office, and the war against France was made subordinate to disputes of personal politics. Meanwhile, one Florence Henzi, a spy at London, had informed the French court that a great armament was fitting out for America, though he could not tell its precise destination. Without loss of time, three French squadrons were sent across the Atlantic, with orders to rendezvous at Louisbourg, the conjectured point of attack. The English were as tardy as their enemies were prompt. Everything depended on speed, yet their fleet, under Admiral Holborn, consisting of fifteen ships of the line and three frigates, with about five thousand troops on board, did not get to sea till the 5th of May when it made sail for Halifax, where Loudon was to meet it with additional forces. Loudon had drawn off the best part of the troops from the northern frontier, and they were now at New York waiting for embarkation. That the design might be kept secret, he laid an embargo on colonial shipping, a measure which exasperated the colonists, without answering its purpose now ensured a long delay during which the troops, the provincial levies, the transports designed to carry them, and the ships of war which were to serve as escort, all lay idle. In the interval, Loudon showed great activity in writing despatches and other avocations more or less proper to a commander. Being always busy, without, according to Franklin, accomplishing anything. One Innes, who had come with the message from the governor of Pennsylvania, and had waited above a fortnight for the general's reply, remarked of him that he was like St. George on a tavern sign, always on horseback and never riding on. Yet nobody longed more than he to reach the rendezvous at Halifax. He was waiting for news of Holborn, and he waited in vain. He knew only that a French fleet had been seen off the coast strong enough to overpower his escort and sink all his transports. But the season was growing late. He must act quickly if he was to act at all. He and Sir Charles Hardy agreed between them that the risk must be run, and on the 20th of June the whole force put to sea. They met no enemy and entered Halifax Harbour on the 30th. Holborn and his fleet had not yet appeared, but his ships soon came straggling in, and before the 10th of July all were at anchor before the town. Then there was more delay. The troops, nearly twelve thousand in all, were landed, and weeks were spent in drilling them and planting vegetables for their refreshment. 
Sir Charles Hay was put under arrest for saying that the nation's money was spent in sham battles and raising cabbages. Some attempts were made to learn the state of Louisbourg, and Captain Gorham of the Rangers, who reconnoitred it from a fishing vessel, brought back an imperfect report, upon which, after some hesitation, it was resolved to proceed to the attack. The troops were embarked again, and all was ready, when, on the 4th of August, a sloop came from Newfoundland, bringing letters found on board a French vessel lately captured. From these it appeared that all three of the French squadrons were united in the harbour of Louisbourg, to the number of twenty-two ships of the line, besides several frigates, and that the garrison had been increased to a total force of seven thousand men, ensconced in the strongest fortress of the continent. So far as concerned the naval force, the account was true. La Motte, the French admiral, had with him a fleet carrying an aggregate of 1,360 cannon, anchored in a sheltered harbour under the guns of the town. Success was now hopeless, and the costly enterprise was at once abandoned. Loudon, with his troops, sailed back for New York, and Admiral Holborn, who had been joined by four additional ships, steered for Louisbourg in hopes that the French fleet would come out and fight him. He cruised off the port, but La Motte did not accept the challenge. The elements declared for France. A September gale of fury rare even on that tempestuous coast burst upon the British fleet. It blew a perfect hurricane, says the unfortunate admiral, and drove us right on shore. One ship was dashed on the rocks, two leagues from Louisbourg. A shifting of the wind in the nick of time saved the rest from total wreck. Nine were dismasted, others threw their cannon into the sea. Not one was left fit for immediate action and had La Motte sailed out of Louisbourg, he would have had them all at his mercy. Delay, the source of most of the disasters that befell England and her colonies at this dismal epoch, was the ruin of the Louisbourg expedition. The greater part of La Motte's fleet reached its destination a full month before that of Holborn. Had the reverse taken place, the fortress must have fallen. As it was, the ill-starred attempt, drawing off the British forces from the frontier, where they were needed most, did for France more than she could have done for herself, and gave Montcalm and Vaudreuil the opportunity to execute a scheme which they had nursed since the fall of Oswego. End of section 37